pastor and author Rick Warren, um, the best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, writes on the beginning of this story by Immaculate Elabagaziza. She writes a story called Left the Town Then Led to Faith. On the cover, he writes, Out of the ruins of the 1994 Rwandan genocide have come the most astounding and moving stories of faith, hope, forgiveness, reconciliation, and miracles that I've ever heard. If you've had a hard time letting go of a deep hurt or difficulty in releasing your offender so that you can get on with the rest of your life, Immokalee's story can lead you to the place of healing, restoration, and peace. Immokalee saw her whole family, most of her family, destroyed through the uh, genocide. She writes, As much as I suffered while hiding from the killers in Pastor Marinzini's house, the confining tiled walls of that bathroom had offered me the greatest freedom I'd ever known. Long after I'd escaped, I actually found myself yearning to be back in the restrictive space where where my mind had nowhere to go but to God. My seven companions and I hadn't been allowed to talk lest we risk alerting the killers. And the room's narrowness had allowed us only the most minimal movements. My leg muscles had been perpetually cramped. My tailbone had burned from endlessly pressing down against the stone floor. And the air had been so stale and thin that even breathing had been an effort. Yet for all that pain and fear, my soul had never soared higher. During those 91 days in hiding, confined in this little bathroom with a bunch of other people, I discovered that physical imprisonment could be spiritually liberating, that there was no greater freedom than the one found through prayer. When I was trapped in the pastor's bathroom, where all I saw was the terror in the eyes of the other women, and all I heard around me were the howls of blood-drunk killers outside. Praying took on a new meaning. My mind focused completely on God for hours on end. At first, my petitions were driven by my fear. I simply wanted to stay alive. But later, as I spent longer periods in communion with him, my prayers transported me to a spiritual level I'd never imagined possible. Praying was no longer a request for divine intervention. It became my gateway to God. And when I passed through, I felt nothing but the warmth and power of his love. In deep prayer, there was no fear, there was no pain, and there were no doubts. There was only the light of the Lord and the certainty that he loved and he cared for me. I felt the Holy Spirit moving within me, and I could hear God's voice assuring me that he was with me. And he always would be. Powerful story. What I want you to note as we read this passage of scripture in Micah chapter 2, is as we get to verses 12 and 13, he comes with a message of hope. And this passage of scripture specifically speaks to the fact that God is one who breaks through. It may be in a small, confined little bathroom 
where he breaks through with his love and his presence, even though all the stuff is going around outside. It may be, as Rick Warren has mentioned in the beginning here, that you need to be freed from someone who has injured you. And God needs to break through the pain and the hurt and those things so that God can lead you into a new place. We can get on with your life. It may be that God needs to break through some desires that you have, that those very desires, instead of leading you into the presence of God, instead of leading you into a greater intimacy with Him and a greater intimacy and a healthier relationship with other people, instead of leading you into these places that your soul most longs for, He needs to break those desires. He needs to begin to place within you new desires and lead you into a new place. Well, this passage is for you. It talks about the one who comes with the breaker anointing. These verses are interesting. It says, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. He's talking to people who he has just been warning. And in the midst of his warning, he's coming to them and he's saying, listen, folks, your desires, your covetousness is leading you to a place you don't want to go. In fact, as you go that way, I will actually, in those desires, move you to the place you don't want to go. And so he goes on, he says, I will gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in his pasture. The place will throng with people. And one who breaks open the way will go up before them. And they will break through the gate and go out. And their king will pass through before them. In the word, the Lord here in the Hebrew means I am will be at their head. It is this very truth that God himself will actually come and he will lead you and break through whatever that resistance is. He will bring to you himself in such a way that as you just listen and follow him, he will move you into these places. What's interesting is you look at this passage of scripture, some of its roots come from the, the whole idea of Moses, this great shepherd who led the people out of Egypt and he, he brought them through the sea and through the wilderness and led them to a promised land where he took and gathered these people and God by his very hand, as we see through that passage, led them. But many believe there's even a more, a, a more direct allusion to the shepherd King David. And this shepherd king David, um, as you read in, in, in throughout First and Second Samuel, you'll find that the words here, if you look at verse 12, gather, and the word in verse 12 breaks, are military words, and they're actually used in this passage where David is talked about at one point as God brings all the nation around him. Saul is dead. He's about to set up the kingdom. In Jerusalem, it says the whole Philistine army came against him. These people who wanted to, to, in every way, come against the work of God, these Philistines were around him, and David is afraid. And yet he inquires of the Lord, and it tells us in verse 20 of chapter 5 in Second Samuel, it uses these very words, the shepherd king David, God himself will break forth. He says, as the waters break out, the Lord has broken out. It's as, if, it's as if God is like this water that comes up against a dam, whatever is holding it back, and this water is rushing up against it, surging with such strength that eventually God himself busts through, and you see all this, this water flowing through. 
He comes to David and he says, before the breakthrough, he says to David, that's what's going to happen. And the people of Israel, in the same way they look back at the shepherd king Moses and how he led them into a promised land, which was to be a place where the presence of God would dwell within a people who would be in healthy relationship with one another, showing to the world the love and compassion of God. He now says, in a similar way, through the shepherd king David, who sets up the kingdom, that this kingdom is the place where God has the ability to just demonstrate his power and his might and his love and authority that through this kingdom once again in this land through David the shepherd king people would see God and he's talking to a people who have lost their way they've gotten trapped by their own desires I love what Mark said when we were worshiping he said you know what our priorities basically our desires that's why the tenth commandment and the first commandment are so important if you desire in a disordered fashion, in a wrong direction, it will lead you to a place, not to God, the first commandment which you have set your heart on, but it will lead you to all kinds of, he says, not life, not health, not good relationship, not all the things that your heart most longs for, but it will lead you into a place of death, destruction, disaster. It will lead you to a place where you are separated, that you will have unhealthy relationships, all these things, he says, if the desire is not right. And so I just want to ask you, as we consider this, how many of you would like a breakthrough in some way in your life. Or maybe you're praying for a breakthrough for someone or for a ministry that you're connected with. What does it mean for God to show up in that way? This message isn't going to be like um, some of the messages that I give. You know, we have three points and then a poem or an illustration and we're out. Uh, You're just going to have to follow me because I'm going to give it to you as God kind of laid it in my heart. And so good luck. Um, J.T. Willis makes this theological point about this passage. According to the hope sections, we we look at chapter 1 and chapter 2 and we come to a hope section. Chapter 3, we'll be coming to another hope section. And and then uh, chapter 6 and 7, another hope section. You have these doom sections of God's warning. But in the midst of it, you have this sense of hope. And every time it it is this direct, direct um, foreshadowing and pointing to a fulfillment that will happen in Jesus. So those are the hope sections. He says, according to the hope sections, there is one major task that, that God, I am, Yahweh, will perform. And that of, of leading his people. See, it's at this point where when you come to these warning sections and then these hope sections, there's a major kind of a fulcrum. Something turns here at this point. He says it is at the point that the overall purpose of the book of Micah comes sharply into focus. The doom sections depict Israel's plight under human leadership. Princes, prophets, priests, rich landowners, our own self-driven desires. And because of these incompetent leaders and desires and people's willingness to follow them, the future holds nothing, he says, but disaster. But there is yet one ray of hope which stands out even in the midst of the disaster. Complete trust in Yahweh, I am, as the only leader worthy of Israel's full allegiance. And so when he comes to this point, after all this warning, he says, folks, here's your hope. This is what you need to put your faith and trust in. If you look at verse 12 and verse 13, he begins in verse 12 and he says, here's the promise. I will surely gather all of you. The idea is, is again, this military word, this idea of muster. He will bring us together, whether he does it within our own soul, whether he does it with other people. He will bring us together as a force to be reckoned with. Surely bringing you together the remnant. There's usually, 
in most situations, there's a few who will be in brokenness and contrite heart will say, God, I want you more than anything else in any crowd, even here today. There's some who are just saying, God, I want you more than anything else in this world. And he says they will, they will come together. And it will I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen. Now, you might be asking, why is this important? What's this gathering together, this bringing together, this bringing into a pen so important about? Because what God has said before is that he had told them that he would, he would actually scatter them. They would be divided and driven away. They're headed for exile, he says, because of their sin-filled, their self-serving desires. God warned them through many prophets, through, through, through many messages, through many years up to this point. These weren't just two messages that Micah gave. There were many messages for many years. And here's what he said. Watch out. Your disordered desires are leading you into exile. Through your own choices, you are moving away from God. You are moving away from true, genuine, healthy community. You're becoming disconnected from your true self. Your soul is being divided. And you're losing complete touch with reality as God has designed it. Exile, he says, is the best way to explain it. So when you look at the warnings given by Micah, you see in Micah chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he says, here, listen, look, I, I want your attention. The Lord is coming from his dwelling place. Mountains melt, valleys split open. All because of your transgressions and sins. It's a very, very general term. It's the idea that you have trespassed. You've actually walked across something you know that you shouldn't. So that verse 16 comes and he says, here's the result. Shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourselves as bald as the vulture. For they will go from you into exile. Micah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Micah gets now very specific. Here are the desires he's talking about that are creating all the disaster that is dividing them, that is actually leading them to a place in their hearts. If they get real with it, they don't want to go. And so he says to them, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. We have all been given a measure of personal power. We have all been given God's um, this great gift called free will, and we can use that will and the power that we've been given for either good or for evil. We can use it to employ ourselves towards a certain direction by certain self-desires, or we can give those desires over to asking God to in, infuse those desires with himself. And so he says, this is what you did with yours. They covet fields and they forcefully seize them, is what the word seize means. And they covet houses. And they take them without any regard to anyone else. In fact, it says they defraud one another of house and inheritance. So Micah chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, God comes to him and says, Because of all this, through your covetous, disordered desires, I have also plotted and planned to expel you from the land. It's really an amazing thing. God is basically saying, I am coming around you and I will do the very same thing through your desires. So when there's a sense that when, when we begin through our own sin and our own desires to head down a course, there's a sense that we choose it and there's also a sense that God helps us move towards it. At what point that happens, I don't know. Micah chapter 2, verse 10. In the same way, you stripped people of their robes, drove them from their homes, and took away their fields and inheritance. And so he says to him, I will also come to you through the Assyrians and say to you, 
who have so heartlessly said to others the very same thing you said to them. When you looked them in the eye and you said, get up, get out of here. This isn't your resting place because it's defiled, it's ruined, it's ours, you haven't paid, whatever it is. By hook or crook, through their desires, they took those things away. And so the point of this, as Micah is laying it out, is the consequences of disordered, self-centered desires lead us to exile. Romans 6.23 says it this way. There's a wage for sin. And it's death. Exile is a picture of barren, isolated, and a lost heart. You can be in exile right now today with all kinds of people around you. When we look at exile here, what you're seeing is, a, is God in a very physical way removing people from his land and the, where his presence was to dwell, which was to mark the very sense of his presence to his temple and through his people. And he's just basically saying to them, your hearts are in such exile. You are so separated from me. You have so separated yourself out of, with no compassion and love for your fellow man. We're just going to make what's going on spiritually here physically a reality. And it's one thing to think about being forced by a tyrant into exile. There are some very good people who, for the purpose of speaking up for truth, get thrown into exile. There's a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn who was sent to the Russian Siberia, the Russian West, where he was sent to exile because he was speaking about truth in a communist country. John in Patmos, in Revelation, is said to be exiled because he was speaking up for the truth and reality of what it means to be a person who is, who is free before God to serve Jesus as their Lord so that they know the fullness of God. And that message was so contrary to the control and the power and the oppression of the Caesars of that day, the rulers of that day, that they exiled him. But there is another kind of exile that God seems to be speaking about here, and that's the kind of exile that we, through our own desires, move ourselves towards and eventually find ourselves in. Think about some modern-day exiles. Do you think Tiger Woods feeling exiled? What about John Edwards? Do you feel a measure of that? Do you know someone who works near you that has a measure of that going on? God said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 to 20, to these people long before they ever went into exile, he said, here's the thing I want you to realize. I, the reason I give you these commands, these ten commandments and these other commandments, isn't because I want to make your life difficult. It's because as you, as you begin to desire me, that tenth commandment, and you desire me more than anything else, you will actually find me. And in the midst of finding me, you will see that my Holy Spirit in you begins to create the kind of character that keeps those different commands. Not for the purpose of being saved, but for the purpose of expressing who I am. And so you, you get this incredible picture of, of God coming to these people saying to you, you have the opportunity to choose life through your desires to move towards this place of healthy relationship and knowing me intimately and, and beginning to understand and experience that with the people that you live with, you love. To do that in a church. To have a whole community look in and, and look at, at, at this group of people, not because we're something greater, we have something about ourselves, but because we have our desire set on a God, and that God in that desire explodes in a sense His goodness to His people. 
And so here you have this picture in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. He says, see, folks, I set before you today life and prosperity. This is thousand years or more before Micah. He's speaking to the children of Israel. You've got to catch that. These are children. Now God is coming to them with warnings and he's saying, you're adults now. You should know better. And so as he speaks to them, he says, see, I'm going to set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. There's two ways. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase. And the Lord God will bless you in the land that you're entering to possess. But if your heart, your desires... They turn away and you are not obedient. And if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and to worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in this land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. An amazing thing of God is we think of long, but we think of in our time frame. In our time frame, we would have had him out there a long time ago. But here's the incomparable, uncommon God that we serve. He is so merciful, so loving that he puts up with our sin. He continues to go after us. He continues to reach after us and and he wants us to be in his presence so much that he gives people more time than they would ever imagine. And he says to him, you won't live long in his standard, which is long by ours. This day I call heaven and earth as witness against you that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God and catch us. Listen to his voice. One of my deep desires when I said, okay, God, you're calling me back into the pastorate, which I went in with fear and trepidation, was that one of my deep desires would be to tell people that you, every one of you who have opened your heart to God, you've invited Jesus to come in, you've asked the Holy Spirit to live and reign in you, you can hear the Spirit of God. And even if you haven't, God still will speak to you. It's just a matter of how open your ears are. And he says, listen to his voice and hold fast to him with your heart. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give you to your fathers and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Despair, death and exile through self-driven human leadership. Which I know so much in my own life. I've experienced that. Or you can choose hope, life, and community as the Spirit would lead you. I, I just look at some of you who are in, in junior high or middle school, high school. Some, I just tell you, some of you kids, now is the time to open your heart to God. What you choose in these years to come will mean much in the years to follow. And here is this God who comes warning in these first two chapters. Now he can't help himself. He's just like this. In the midst of all this warning, in the midst of people basically giving him the high hand, which we would say today, to be real about it, giving him the finger, saying, I don't want you in my life. He comes and he says, here's hope. If you would actually repent and turn and, and allow me to place my desires within you, I will break forth. I will, I will actually lead the way for you. And he does this again and again to the people of Israel. God was promising 
to bring a remnant of his people back together again. The fulfillment of that would be in Jesus. But he, he points to a few places along the way. God is so good, he sometimes, in larger fulfillments, gives us little mini ones to hope on. So some commentators really wrestle with this because at one point, just a, a number of years later, in the reign of Hezekiah, when Micah and Isaiah were still there um, proclaiming this hope of God in the midst of all this warning, Sennacherib, you know, Sennacherib comes around this, this army around Jerusalem and the people muster together, gather together, and God goes out and actually annihilates the army of Sennacherib. He goes back and his sons kill him. But he points also to another one. In 587, when, when the people have been, the land had been destroyed, the people have gone into exile, God comes and he, through a man named Cyrus, opens the door again. And God leads the way and the people come back into the land of Israel. They rebuild the temple, although not what it was once. They rebuild the temple and God once again draws his people together. For in 500 years he was going to bring his son Jesus and his son Jesus is going to come and his son Jesus is going to say to anybody who is willing to take those self-centered, driven desires that you know mess up your life and your family and your kids and all the rest, he will take. And if you just place them on his altar, he will on a cross take all those things. He will remove them from you and he will begin to pour his spirit into your life. Now, it doesn't happen immediately that all this change happens. But it does happen immediately that the Spirit of God comes into you and you are saved. Then there's this process of allowing the Spirit of God to begin to change the very habits and patterns that you have grown up with, that he begins to rewire your head and mind so that your thinking, as Paul says, begins to change. Your heart begins to change. So, to anyone, he says, who is in a place of exile, to any of your friends who are in a place of exile, God, God comes with great news. This incredible hope. It says that I am here and present for you, and if you will, I will lead you, and I will break forth, I will move mountains, I will do whatever is necessary to bring you into my presence, not just now, but forever. Now, I love the Old Testament, and here's where I want to kind of keep you with me for a second. Because as I looked at this whole story of Micah in exile, there's a, there's a really important message in this. The Old Testament stories are written in order for us to be able to see our own salvation. They're written for us to be able to see how God works in our life on a daily basis. I love Old Testament stories. I mean, they're the kind of stories that you usually share with your kids, right? How many um, remember as a kid or remember um, if you had the, the, the blessing of parents who might read this to you or as parents or grandparents, how many of you read New Testament letters to your kids when they're going to bed at night? Most of you read what? Old Testament stories, right? Can you imagine opening Corinthians and starting reading these to your, your you know, five-year-old? You see, God works through the Old Testament in a way that he gives us these stories, which are true historical stories, in order for us to be able to understand how God works with us as his people. And so he used concrete examples of exile from the land in his temple in order to signify how we live in his presence and how his power begins to develop within us in order to have the kind of community that has the compassion that touches the world. Think about the stories of the Old Testament and how God uses them to teach spiritual realities. The Exodus. 
Just think about the Exodus. Here they are imprisoned in Egypt. There's a display of miracles before Pharaoh and the people of Israel. He gets a hold of their attention and Pharaoh lets them go and they are marching on their way through the sea. But as they're at the sea, they're standing before impending death because they have nowhere to go. They're, they're shut off by the sea with the, the, the army of Egypt coming behind them. And God opens a way. As the way is open, they walk through the wilderness. In the wilderness, God is teaching them all kinds of things in order to bring them into a land called promise and plenty. Right? So when you think about that, and you think of that picture, you get this picture of, of salvation. Here we are, a pre- people, entrapped in our own sin, our own selfishness, the fears, and all the things that are about us. We, we, we naturally had that direction. And God, in his grace and his goodness, begins to do things around us, miracles of, of grace, some theologians call provenient grace, things that allow for us to see God's hand at work until we begin to trust him a little bit so that we begin to put ourselves into his hands. At some point he calls us, when we come to the end of ourselves, when we recognize that in ourselves we, we see our sin, we see our failure, we see our brokenness, we see the fact that due to that there is no way that we can through our own means get in any way into the accepting, approving heart of God. And we, we cry out like we're at the end of this Dead Sea with impending death, and God opens the way through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He says, come into my presence, I'll walk with you, I will save you and move you. And then you begin to go through this wilderness experience, which we're all experiencing to some degree right now, correct? Because in the wilderness, when you go through it, if you read all the different temptations, all the different things that occurred through the wilderness, each one of them are, are specific examples of how God meets the needs of His people. So when you're in this wilderness, you're walking with God right now, and you're beginning to move with him, you begin to start to see, like it shows through that whole Exodus story, that you are moving in this wilderness to a place where you're beginning to trust God to provide. And many of us fail that lesson, right? But the whole purpose of causing us to trust in God's provision is so that he can build our faith, that we will begin to develop the heart of of God, that will actually have formed within us the very character of Christ. And when the character of Christ is beginning to truly be formed, faith now comes to a place that it actually releases the power of God. It is a faith that now is is what God has done in us, allows for His Spirit to do things we could never imagine possible. It brings us to a place where we see His power, we see His presence, and we begin to experience His plenty. And as I said in the first service, I don't know if a lot of people live in that place. But I believe that's what Jesus called us to. Well, then you see the story of um, Saul and David. Let me give you another concrete example. I remember studying this for two, three years when I was in between a pastorate and, and this one. And, and I, was, um, I just poured myself into First and Second Samuel and wrote every morning devotionals. And I began to see how God used the story of Saul. Here's a guy called by God. And if you look at his life, he's a guy who continually chose out of fear out of selfishness, to move away from God. He was a person who lived in his flesh. And up in that midst of the flesh-driven person, Saul, comes a person named David who comes before God, who stands and says, I guess you can kill Goliath if you want to. And as a result of that is, is one who, again and again, instead of, in, instead of in any way depending on his own strength, he says, I don't need the weapons. All I need is a stone and God begins to inquire to God again and again. And every time you see him come into a battle, you see David going to God. You see David going to the Holy Spirit and allowing the Spirit of God to extend the kingdom. So what do you see in the exile? 
Here are people who have been called to exhibit the presence of God. Who were children who are now to be adults. Who have been given everything necessary in order that they could begin to express in relationship with their father and in relationship with other people, the love, compassion and goodness of God in a very open handed way because they saw a God who was provided for them and they were to be a light to the world. And instead, they were darkness. And God says, if you're going to be exiled in your heart from me and from others, we'll take that spiritual reality And that will become physical. And he says that to people. He says, you have the opportunity to either walk with me and to begin to place your desires towards me or away from me. And I just want to ask you, where are you in your story with God? Are you allowing the hand of God to author your life? Are you using your personal power and beginning to ask God to give you his desires to display his goodness? Jesus makes this incredible claim. I love it. In John chapter 10, it it points to this whole thing in Micah where he says in John chapter 10, verse 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he goes on, he says, the reason my father loves me, verse 17, is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. You get the point? I mean, he says it's three times in a row. I have a personal power. I have my will. I have, I have the ability to author my life, just like every, every one of us here does. But catch this. This is what's so amazing. After he says that three times, he says, this command I've received from my father. It's almost like, well, make up your mind. He's basically saying, these commands, this will of God, as I place my will in his, I am authoring my life, and I am actually co-authoring it with God. In order for him to write a story I could never write. In essence, we're all co-authors. Micah warns people that they're authoring their own destruction and exile. So I just want to, with just a minute left, get really practical for a second. This story, Micah, is specifically about covetous desires. And I ask you to think for a second. Are your disordered desires, are those desires moving you closer or further from God? Closer or further from the people you love? There's five ways I want you to consider following this. And uh, some of you are in life groups. Some of this stuff will be on the, um, the website this week, these five things. But I want you to think about it because they're very practical. Ways that you can author your life with the command of God. First is this. Admire without having to acquire. Okay? Second, confess what you obsess. Third, don't flatter what doesn't matter. Fourth, don't resent 
be content. And five, give freely, don't grab forcefully. I really want you to pray and think about those things. Because as you author your life with God and you come before him in just humbleness, you say, God, begin to work these things out in me. You place yourself in a position for God to lead. For you to look at God and go, God, you are incredibly great. Let's stand together and pray. Father, what a joy it is um, to know that you are so unlike any one of us. You are here again this morning saying, um, I deeply love you. I want to break forth for you. I want to show you how great I am. Let's open your heart and life to me. Walk with me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.